<clears throat> Today is the fourth day of this February 2022 four-day session, and we will continue uh, with the book Faith in Mind, commentary on Sung San's classic by Chan Master Sheng Yen. Going to pick back up <clears throat> where we left off yesterday. <clears throat> he just said, "Do not have any doubts about the method, or whether you have the right stuff to practice. Do not underestimate yourself. If others can practice, then at least you can try." Then he says. <clears throat> Once a student who did well on her first retreat came a second time. At first, everything went fine, but then a problem arose. While sitting, it occurred to her that counting the breath was very boring. If she spent her time reciting the name of the Buddha, she thought, then at least she would be accumulating merit. But what was the use of counting from one to ten? <clears throat> Towards evening, she said to me, "Shifu, I don't want to stay on this retreat. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Even a kid in kindergarten can do that. Why should I waste my time here?" He says, "When your mind strays from the method, problems will appear. <clears throat> in fact, the method is inherently meaningless." minute we start looking for the meaning, we're going to go astray. I used to be, as a child, plagued with the question, what is the purpose of life? <clears throat> My mother actually was concerned enough that she sent me off to a child psychologist. <laughs> I brought it up once with uh, Roshi Kaplow, and he just shot right back, the purpose of life is living, which at the time struck me as kind of a Zen quick answer. It didn't really hit home, but that's it exactly. Of course, it's just one of those things. It's obvious once you see it. says, the method is inherently meaningless. It is irrelevant to discuss whether it brings merit or not. The purpose of a method is to train your mind. Many people feel the purpose of the method is to produce a result. Well, I guess in a way, training your mind <clears throat> could be considered a result. Your mind is trained But really, the, the purpose of practice is to practice. It says, you can raise the same objection about prostrating to the Buddha or morning and evening chanting. Why should practice take these forms? <clears throat> People often wonder, if Chan is a method of sudden enlightenment that does not depend on meditation, 
and why do we practice meditation and go on seven-day retreats? If someone objects that these things are unrelated to Chan, I say that if you want to study Chan, I will instruct you in exactly these methods. In order to practice, you must believe in your teacher and his methods. If you search for methods on your own, you may not find anything and eventually give up practicing. Or you may find something weird and end up in a demonic state with mental and physical problems. This is sort of a perennial complaint from people who've studied Zen intellectually. Why do we need to sit? I was introduced to Zen myself by reading Alan Watts, who was pretty dismissive of formal sitting practice, what he called square Zen. It was such an eye-opener when I finally came across the three pillars of Zen, found out you could do something to actually realize what Alan Watts was talking about. <clears throat> Skipping ahead a little bit, uh, he says, meditation should just be a part of life. Just something we do. It's like brushing your teeth. Don't have to think about it. So important to practice every day. Find a way to get your butt on the cushion every day. I tell people, if you don't have any time, see if you can find five minutes. One minute. breathing behind the wheel of your car, breaking that flow of one thought after another, one problem after another, one thing to do after another. Meditation should just be a part of life. If you have other motivations, it will lead to problems. When you approach the practice with any expectations, you will not be able to sit well. Because you step out of this moment, you're looking into the future. That's not practice. That's not the method. We need to learn to do what's right under our nose, right in front of us. But it goes against our inbred habit of looking into the future, of anticipating problems. says, not only should you not have any expectations of getting enlightened or becoming a Chan master, but you should not even expect to be free from your pain. Do not hope that your legs or back will stop hurting. Do not try to overcome the pain as if you had to, as if you had to burst through a barrier. Simply accept the pain. 
<clears throat> you may not feel very happy about it, but at least do not resent it. If you cannot accept it, then ignore it and turn your mind to the method. When the pain becomes too great to ignore, place your attention on the pain itself. Disassociate yourself from the part of your body that is painful. Let it ache away. <clears throat> this is similar to something that uh, Shunryu Suzuki, the uh, late abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center, said. He said, your legs are practicing their own zazen independently and are completely involved in their own pain. They're doing zazen through pain. You should allow them to practice their own zazen. It's, it's <clears throat> remarkable how a slight shift in our relationship to our pain, uh, getting out from underneath it, not feeling uh, identified with it, can diminish it. And Cheng Yin says, if you can take this attitude, eventually it will go away. When you really get into the practice, all bodily sensation will disappear. We've said before, working with pain is one of the great lessons of Sashin. So much to be learned about our preferences, our expectations. about how our avoidance behaviors make things worse. <clears throat> Sometimes people learn to work with pain, and then over time it diminishes, and suddenly they're doing pain-free zazen, and they miss it. It's easy to lose your impetus. You don't have that familiar goad my early days when I was constantly unhappy in my practice <clears throat> I ran across that I ran into that finally got through the pain and then all of a sudden oh <laughs> now I have to actually sit He says, the important thing is not to have any resentment against your suffering or any expectations of happiness. As soon as ideas such as suffering versus happiness arise, your mind will already be straying from the method caught up in duality. <clears throat> You're all aware that this center is not an ideal environment for practice. The center here in the United States for Shengyan's group was... Uh, or is, in Queens, New York, on a busy street. It says, the neighbors hammer against the walls. Outside, there is a continual stream of traffic and airplanes passing overhead. Yet even in the midst of this noisy and crowded world, we are given a small area to practice. So we should not let our minds be distracted by what is going on outside or by what comes in contact with our senses. <clears throat> Of course, here at Chapin Mill, we could say that this is kind of an ideal place to do zazen, to hold retreats, to have sashin. But even here in this ideal place, our problems are still with us. We ourselves are the problem. 
He says, on retreat, you're living with many people which may create an uncomfortable environment. You don't feel free or find it as convenient as at home. On the other hand, the presence of others will encourage, almost force you to practice. Even if you are not practicing energetically, at least you will make an effort to appear to be practicing. Don't think I need to say we don't want to settle for that. But a lot of people have kept going just to keep up appearances and eventually found something more. It says, when people sit together, they can be of great benefit to each other. Whether you practice well or not, treasure this rare opportunity and do your best. That used to always bug me. Roshi Kaplan would say, just do your best. So I never felt it was my best. I can be self-critical and say, well, I'm sure I could do better. <clears throat> it's not what it means. Do the best you can do right now. Skipping ahead a bit, uh, the verse is, in our translation, for things are things because of mind, as mind is mind because of things. These two are merely relative, and both at source are emptiness. In emptiness, these are not two, yet in each are contained all forms. And then Shingen's translation is, object is object because of the subject. Subject is subject because of the object. Know that the two are originally one emptiness. In emptiness, the two are the same, containing all phenomena. He says these lines describe a non-discriminating mind in which, nevertheless, there is perfectly clear discrimination. In the course of practice, the more negative things you discover about yourself, the clearer you will be as to the road you should walk. After leaving mainland China, I was conscripted into the Nationalist Army of Taiwan. This is when he was in his 20s, very young. He really had no choice. So he had to leave being a monk and enlist in the Taiwanese army. Says at that time, everything was in a state of confusion and the troops were crowded together in a warehouse. In this warehouse, there were no windows or lights And at night, people couldn't see their way to the toilet, so many just relieved themselves where they were. Others who decided to feel their way outside ended up stepping on the mess in the dark. However, at daybreak, one could see the shit very clearly and avoid it. It was a mistake to imagine that just because you couldn't see it, there was no shit on the floor. Those who have never taken up the practice are like the people in that dark room. No matter where they walk, they step in shit. Coming to retreat is like putting a light light into the room. Maybe the light will only stay on for a minute, but at least you can see some of the problem areas. Gradually, you'll be able to tell exactly where the shit is and where it isn't. The more you know, the less likely you will step in it. 
but to get angry when you discover problems would just be adding trouble to trouble. It would be as if, after realizing you stepped on some shit, you did it again just to punish yourself. And yet it's so hard when problems arise not to see them as something we want to we wish hadn't happened. There's a saying, uh, a Buddhist saying, liberation is being glad to see your karmic hindrances arise. It can be painful, but it's so valuable. If we never see it, then nothing ever happens. Nothing ever gets improved. We don't move along. Someone else said, it's like a compassionate alarm bell reminding you you're lost in the dream. Dream of good and bad. He says, retreats are like road repair. When there is a problem underneath the road, the workers break up the pavement in order to fix the cables, pipes, or whatever is faulty. After they finish the work, they pave over it again, and everything is just as it was before. Likewise, in order to make our own repairs, we have to break up the road and mess things up temporarily. Thus, discovering one's problems in the course of practice is very useful. But do these problems actually exist? Yes, the miseries of the retreat are quite real. You are truly tired and uncomfortable. You are definitely in this place and not some other. Yet you must look at non-existence from the point of view of existence. When you can't concentrate on the method, when you haven't gotten enough sleep, when your legs are painful, it is all really happening. But originally your legs were not painful. It was only after you started sitting that they became painful. If you stretch out your legs, they will, will no longer hurt. Thus, when you experience pain, you should keep in mind that it doesn't have a true existence. If it did, it would be there even when you were not meditating. Though some of you have trouble concentrating, it cannot be that during the entire retreat there has not been at least once when you could concentrate to some extent. He's pointing out that none of these problems are permanent. Everything is fungible. Everything changes. He says if you can use your method even for a very short time, that already lets you know that your scattered mind does not have true existence. Do not be fearful when your mind is scattered. Just recognize that it is temporary. we understand this, we can have confidence. We have a foundation for practice. We know we can move in the direction we need to go. Doesn't mean everything is going to get fixed in, any, in, in anything close to our own schedule. <clears throat> he goes on, when you succeed in concentrating, is that mind real? Of course not. If the mind were truly concentrated, it would not become scattered again. 
Now, if both the scattered mind and the concentrated mind are unreal, that means there is originally no mind. If this is so, it should be very easy to progress in the practice. To be aware that mind does not exist will strengthen your faith even though you have not experienced no mind. <clears throat> can know that the mind is not a thing. We speak of the mind all the time, but what on earth do we imagine it is? Mind here and the contents of the mind somewhere else? It says, so long as you have faith in the non-existence of mind, you can keep on practicing without any anxiety or disappointment. <clears throat> A small setback does not mean that you have failed. It's just that the time has not yet arrived. If you climb halfway up a mountain, you cannot say that you have failed. You just need to continue climbing until you reach the summit. One time I was in a car with a few people driving up a mountain. After two hours, I asked the driver, what's going on? We don't seem to be getting anywhere on this mountain. He said, actually, we've reached the top. It was a very flat, gradual rise. <clears throat> Sometimes it's like walking through mist. We get wet without even knowing it. People change and they don't even realize it. See somebody who's been practicing for some years or months you haven't seen before, you can see a difference. <clears throat> Maybe it's a difference they don't see. It's like meeting someone else's children you haven't seen for a few years. It's gotten so big, but for the parents, it's just been... Same each day. They can look back and say, oh my gosh, <laughs> this used to be an adorable baby. Now it's a sullen, resentful teenager. <laughs> an adorable, sullen, resentful teenager. <clears throat> it says, now let us look at existence from the point of view of emptiness. For example, a monk cannot say that women do not exist just because he does not have relationships with them. The story I often tell from the koans, a monk who was practicing chan was being supported by an old woman who provided him with a hut and daily offerings of food. One day she decided to test his practice. She told her beautiful daughter to bring the monk his food and then embrace him. <clears throat> The next day, the old woman asked the monk, how did you find my daughter? He replied, like dry wood leaning against a cold rock. With that, she grabbed a broom and drove him off, saying, all this time I thought you were a man of Chan. <clears throat> Although this monk had reached a deep level of practice, he had not yet realized Chan. Being attached to emptiness, he denied existence. Where is the response to the daughter?
practice shouldn't make us rigid. Need to be flowing, spontaneous, flexible, aware, and compassionate. Be able to notice and respond. Shingen says, during a retreat, you can enter a state where you do not taste your food or know where you are walking. You do not recognize the person you are looking at. In this condition, your body follows the normal routine, but your mind is totally absorbed in the method. You have entered the great doubt sensation. Prior to this, when your mind is still scattered, I tell you to concentrate carefully on whatever you are doing and to maintain a total awareness of every action. When you are completely focused, you may slip into the next stage where you lose awareness of your body even as it continues to function smoothly and automatically. The third level is to return to total awareness. However, unlike the first level, there are no scattered thoughts whatsoever. When you are eating, you are just eating. When you are sleeping, you are just sleeping. No more, no less. Originally, you had to work very hard on your method, but when you get to the second level, everything flows naturally. The practice just keeps moving like a ball rolling down a hill. At that time, even though you are practicing very well, you would not think of yourself as practicing. This is called the true existence of emptiness. That is to say, you feel that nothing exists, but your mind is really there working on the method. Again, skipping ahead. This is a section that begins with uh, this verse of the poem. In our version, it's, Just let go now of thinking mind, and all things are just as they are. In essence, nothing goes or stays. See into the true self of things, and you're in step with the great way, thus walking freely undisturbed. And in Sheng Yen's version, Let it go and be spontaneous. Experience no going or staying. Accord with your nature, unite with the way, wander at ease without vexation. <clears throat> and Sheng Yen says, the most important thing in practice is to be natural and spontaneous. Being natural does not mean neglecting everything. It requires careful attention. In meditation, you should sit in a natural posture and use your mind in a natural way. Sitting in a natural posture means sitting just right. If you're comfortable when you first assume the sitting posture, even if pain develops in your legs later on, that is still natural. It is unnatural, however, to sit bent over or leaning to one side or with your head tipped back. A natural posture should follow the demands of your physiology. It's not natural to tighten your stomach muscles or straighten your back by protruding your chest. You can become 
easily too obsessed with your posture. You need to be sitting upright. You need to have a solid foundation. When you're in a good posture, you're less likely to have aches and pains, stiff neck, shoulders. But sometimes they're unavoidable. Tension we have not yet let go of uh, creates those problems. It says to use your mind in a natural way means to avoid trying to control it. The more you try to control your mind, the more stray thoughts will come up to bother you. In fact, the very fear of stray thoughts is another stray thought. Therefore, if you have many stray thoughts, consider it a natural phenomenon and do not despise them. But on the other hand, if you completely give in to a train of wandering thoughts, that's not correct either. What is the best approach? Pay close attention to the method. If you do that, stray thoughts will be kept to a minimum. <clears throat> Roshi is fond of saying the brain is an organ that secretes thoughts. It's natural for them to come into the mind. Shingen says it is not that they will not arise, but you will not worry about them. If you are really paying attention to the method, you will be aware of a stray thought as soon as it arises. When it comes up, just let it go. <clears throat> so much of practice is that awareness, catching the thought right in the beginning. It's the uh, image of someone smoking a cigarette and the ash drops on their wool sweater. They brush it off immediately, no damage done. But if you let it linger, all of a sudden you've got a problem. Let it go. See it and return. He says it's just like a person who's carrying a stack of bowls. If someone says to him, be careful, you're going to drop them, he'll drop them. But if nobody says anything, he'll just keep going. <clears throat> Do not fear failure. Whatever happened in the past is past. Don't worry about it happening again. Before you meet with success, failure is natural and necessary. As a baby learns to walk, it keeps falling down. Is this failure? Throughout our life, we go through similar processes. Going to school, pursuing a career, practicing Chan. After my first book, someone said to me, now you're a success. <laughs> I said, no, that book was a failure. I would write it much better if I had to do it again. It is the same with practice. There is never a successful conclusion. When you are working hard, failure is natural. If you've never failed, you have never tried. <clears throat> I think Dogen said Zen practice is continuous failure. Don't let your fear of failure prevent you from doing what you value, what you need to do. He says, on the other hand, you should not have a defeatist attitude thinking, as long as I'm going to fail, let me fail. According to Buddhism, nothing can be perfect, can be a perfect, unqualified success. 
If you were elected president of the United States, would that be a success? <clears throat> oh, that sentence reads so differently since 2016. <clears throat> Later on, you would likely be criticized as a failure. <laughs> Even President Lincoln would probably consider himself a failure. This is natural. Even when you do not feel, it is when you do not feel successful that you put in the effort. When you no longer need to make an effort, that is true success or liberation. At that point, there are no vexations. Nevertheless, you have neither thrown away vexation, vexations nor grasped liberation. If you want to hold on to enlightenment and keep away vexations, that is not the true natural state. <clears throat> but to follow your own nature in this sense is not the same as following your personal habits or whims, as in the expression, be natural, <clears throat> or Mr. Natural. Nature here refers to your self-nature or Buddha nature. Some people think that one can become a Buddha through meditation. This is wrong. The potential for Buddhahood is already within your own nature. If it were true that Buddhahood depended on meditation, then if you stopped meditating after becoming a Buddha, you would become a common person again. The objective of practice is to be in accord with the natural way so that your true nature can manifest itself. Just practice according to the methods taught by the Buddha and do not worry about being a success. The Heart Sutra says, there is no wisdom and no attainment. Although practice may be trying, even physically painful, if your heart is carefree, nothing will bother you. A carefree approach does not mean not caring about how you practice. It means considering anything that happens as natural. There may be some pain, but there will be no suffering. There's nothing in your mind that you cannot put down. <clears throat> there may be the raw, direct experience of pain, but there's not pain on top of pain. That sense there is no suffering. Not making a problem out of what comes in the natural course of events. Not making problems out of our so-called failures using them as a course correction, moving ahead. There's nothing in your mind that you cannot put down. <clears throat> as it says in the sutra, mind abiding nowhere should flow forth. <clears throat> And then this verse, bound by thoughts, you depart from the real, and sinking into a stupor is as bad. And he says, to be in bondage to your thoughts means to be influenced and carried away by various conditions in your surroundings. If you do this, you are grasping the false. You can try to limit your thoughts by using the method, but in fact, as long as the method is still in your mind, you are still abiding in the false, not in the real. But in that case, should you discard the method? 
The problem with discarding the method is that while you may seem to have no thoughts, you may still fall into a foggy state. Even though the method is not real, it is even worse to be suspended in a nebulous frame of mind. The ideal state would be to drop the fogginess along with the method to be unattached to conditions. What does it mean to be unattached to conditions? It means that there are no thoughts in your mind, but whatever appears is perfectly clear. When you reach this state, you will perceive everything as equal. This is because at that time to you, nothing really exists. Reality cannot be divided into individual people and objects. When nothing is in front of you, it is the same as when there are many things there. In a room full of people, you would not feel crowded, and if a room were empty, you would not feel lonely. Though there is no discrimination in your mind, when relating to people, you distinguish between a monk and a layperson, or a man and a woman. You follow worldly conventions. <clears throat> in other words, you're not stuck anywhere. However, if your mind is blank, does this not mean you have discarded conditions and reached the state of no thoughts? <clears throat> the blank state, the blank state would be equivalent to the foggy state rather than to the true empty state. Sometimes when you are exhausted, your mind takes a rest and you're not thinking of anything in, partic in particular. Do not confuse this with enlightenment. <clears throat> the method is another way of grasping onto thoughts, but it is a way that allows us to eventually overcome grasping. Using the method effectively is like knitting a sweater. You cannot drop one stitch, otherwise the whole piece will start unraveling. The method should be practiced in the same dense matter. Dense means that your attention is so continuous that there is no space between for any interruptions. <clears throat> Roshi Kaplow used to use the uh, metaphor of rubbing two sticks together to make fire. If you rub for a little bit and then you stop and rest and then you rub again, you're never going to get that fire. Or it's like pumping water from a well, old-fashioned mechanical pump with a pump handle. Used to have those back in ancient times when I was a kid. You pump and pump and pump and nothing is happening. If you keep at it, all of a sudden the water is gushing out. This is the way to practice. Unhurried, steady, continuous, not being thrown by what happens, by our failures, by our obstacles, vexations. With faith, faith in the method, faith in this practice. So wonderful, no matter how difficult, it's so wonderful <clears throat> to sit together day after day, doing this much sitting, coming back again and again to the practice. 
growing into our real life. The more we can avoid being thrown by our critical self-judgment, falling into irritability, falling into despondency, just realize that every moment we can pick ourselves up, can turn the mind, have that ability. When you can say to yourself, no matter what, I'm going to keep doing this, then your practice really will have reached an important stage. Okay, time is up. Stop now and recite the four vows.